the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and you are listening to our radio show program, The Word to Stand On for Life. We're here to take your calls, your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about putting the Word of God into practice in your life, questions about Jesus and how you can fall deeper in love with Him. That's why we're here. And so with that, let me give you the phone number so you can call in. 210-340-9585 The toll-free number if you're out of the area is 877-630-5757 877-630-5757 We have an email address. If you want to submit questions that way, you can do so at questions at calvarysa.com, questions at calvarysa.com. Don't forget, we also have our church app. You can submit questions that way. There is a radio uh, button there at the bottom. You can go right to the page where you can enter your question and submit it from there. You can also listen on the KSLR app. It's super easy. Hit the call now button if you want to dial into the radio station and ask your question on the air. You can do that, and it makes it especially easy if you're in your car. All right, it's Tuesday, and you're tuning into the Tuesday edition. Right off the bat, let me please apologize. If you were tuning in yesterday to the radio show, we had an amazing amount of technical difficulties. I'm I'm certain we got them all resolved today, Lord willing. But yesterday, it might have been difficult if you were listening on the radio side. And so for that, I want to apologize. There were hiccups that I think we resolved on the Internet side you you should be able to hear everything from yesterday's show on the radio archive. So go to our website, go to KSLR's website. You, if you want to tune into yesterday's show with the questions that were asked, you can do so that way. Here at Calvary Chapel, we don't have anything going on on Tuesdays, and so uh, we'll go right into our questions. We do have some that were submitted. First, let me say, in case you missed it yesterday, uh, Pastor Ron and Paula are out of town this week. So I will be filling in for Pastor Ron on this radio show. He normally hosts this show, as many of you know, and he sends his love. Both he and Paula are enjoying time in, in California with family, and they will be back next week. So that means... I fill in every day this week, and then on Thursday for the day-day edition, me and my best friend May, we get to do the show together. All right. Natalie has the first question for today. She says, is fasting something you do on your own or something that God asks of you? Also, is it just food or can you give up things like social media, video games, etc.? Uh, what 
and what is the main purpose of fasting? I've always known to fast when you really want something. So I'm not sure, or is it to grow a closer, grow into a closer relationship with the Lord? Natalie, thanks for your question. This is, this is one that we get pretty often, actually. And I'm going to say the same thing that, that Pastor Ron always says, which is you want to go to the Word first when it comes to questions about uh, what we do and why we do them. Uh, fasting is one of those things where we often hear Christians talking about fasting or, or, or religious people even talking about fasting. But what does the Bible have to say about fasting? Well, the, the definitive chapter for fasting is in Isaiah chapter 58. It's a short chapter, but God speaking through Isaiah to the people of Israel addresses this very issue. And what God does there in Isaiah 58 is he doesn't give explicit instructions on how to fast. You see, we get caught up in the details of how to fast, Natalie. Do we do food only? Do we abstain from this? And, and all of those things really are religious. The truth is, and we get this again from Isaiah 58, God doesn't command us to fast. In fact, for the Jews, there would be only one day of the entire year where they, according to the law, were commanded to fast. That would be the Day of Atonement. But other than that, God doesn't command them to fast. But what we do find in Isaiah 58 is God saying, look, I'm not as concerned about what you do or how you fast. I'm more concerned with a heart behind which you fast and really the heart behind which you do anything. And so Isaiah 58, uh, this is what God says here in verse two. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager and seem eager for God to come near to them. And then this is what they say. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And so this describes the attitude of the people who were fasting, the Jews who were fasting to get something from God. And that's not the point of fasting. It's not the point of anything that we do. You see, we don't manipulate God, Natalie, into doing things for us. Now, you're right. We do come to God through prayer with, like Paul the Apostle said, with our prayers and supplications and intercessions. These things, we do come to the Lord and we cry out to Jesus for these things. And Jesus wants us to, pour, to pray specifically about the things that are on our heart, but we don't do things to get God to do what we want. You know, too many Christians, and not you, Natalie, but too many Christians have this idea of, you know, treating God sort of like a genie, where if we pray really hard, and by the way, that's praying really hard is, it just doesn't make sense to me. You either are praying with the right heart or you're not. But we have this idea where we, we, we clench our fists and we, we, we toil in, in prayer and, and, and cry out really loud. And that's even a deeper prayer, a more fervent prayer than a, than a prayer that isn't said um, with a lot of words. But that's not true. What we see here in the scriptures and here again in Isaiah 58 is God is more concerned about the heart the heart behind which we do things. This is what God says in Isaiah 58 in verse 6, where he talks about the right way to fast, if you will. Is not this kind of fasting what I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? And so fasting, as God describes it, is not necessarily the outward action of doing something or even abstaining for things. It is uh, 
the heart that is fixed on seeking God's heart, that we would align our hearts with God's heart, that we would align our mind with God's mind, so that when we have uh, things that we're praying for, uh, instead of instead of giving God a list of demands that we want met, we're praying and asking God for for Him to intercede. We're praying for someone to be healed. We're praying for a miracle to take place. But at the same time, we're praying that our hearts would align with his. And so fasting is just a a practical outward way of denying yourself of things for the purpose of hearing from God clearly, that your heart would be aligned with his, not to get God to do something. Uh, If the Lord leads you to fast, then you do it with the right heart. But again, it's not something we're commanded to do, not in the New Testament. Uh, It's not something that Christians need to do. But if it's something that the Holy Spirit leads you to do, just make sure, Natalie, you're doing it with the right intentions. So I hope that helps with all the details. I know you had a few questions in there, but I think that addresses sort of the root of the question. Um, On another side note to this, and I mentioned this about Praying, You know, when James writes that uh, a fervent prayer avails much, uh, we think that this means we've got to pray really hard or pray a certain way or pray with really long words um, or pray really long even. And though we should be praying constantly, God isn't, God isn't really concerned with what type of vernacular we use when we're praying. Uh, he wants our hearts to be wide open. And same thing when it comes to fasting. So, Natalie, I hope that answers your question. And thank you for submitting that. Let's go right to line one. Lucy, you're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ken, God bless you. I really like the answer that you gave to Natalie's question. That's something that I've been thinking about also, and from time to time we have friends that um, that ask us to pray and fast for something or another, and so it's good to know the right way to, uh, to fast. Uh, oh, that's, question, thanks, Lizzie. My question today, though... I submitted it yesterday when we were having all the issues with the technology. Um, And so I submitted it to the church uh, website. And I thought, well, let me call and see if I can um, ask this question on the air. That's great. I'd much rather hear your voice, Lucy. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So um, we, I had a conversation with a friend and um, the subject of preaching about the end times came up. And okay. she asked me, why are some pastors more than others so very focused on studying the events of, that are leading to the end times? She referenced, um, you know, there's a pastor in uh, Calvary Chapel, Gib, um, Gibbs, Jack Hibbs, or... Uh, Hibbs, I think, is Correct. the pastor. Um, and uh, and she was wondering why uh, our pastors in our church don't um, focus on those things. She's very interested in the end times and keeping track of what's going on and all that. And I know that my answer I gave her um, has to do with prioritizing Jesus as the the way of preaching. But I wanted to hear your answer Absolutely. and see see what Absolutely. God uh, speaks to us about through your answer. Absolutely. And Excellent question. I'll go ahead and hang up and listen on the line. Okay, Lucy, thank you for your call. And that is an excellent question. And the reason why I say it's excellent, I think there's practical value to this question because... Uh, there are churches that do not talk about eschatology, eschatology being the study of end times. 
There are churches that go the other extreme, and th- that's all they talk about. And and we're a church here at Calvary Chapel where we simply teach what the Bible says. And what we do is teach the Bible in an expository format, which means we're systematically going through the Word of God, studying it verse by verse in its context. And as we do that throughout the Scriptures, we will come across passages that deal with things like eschatology, and we will take the time to focus on them. But we're not going to uh, go through topical series, and some churches do that. What we believe, it is much more effective to teach the Word of God in an expository way, because then it's not us trying to uh, be creative with messages. We're just teaching what the verse is saying, then we stop, and then next week we pick up where we left off. And what we find, Lucy, is this amazing process of the Holy Spirit taking the verses that are being taught and applying it into the hearts and then into the lives of the people that are listening, very specific to the things that they're dealing with at that very moment. You see, if we go through the Bible in a topical format, again, I realize a lot of churches will do that. But it leaves room there to sort of guide and direct a message that we may want to say. And we're not interested in communicating a message that we think is relevant to the times. We don't think we're not interested in communicating a message that is, you know, heavy on our hearts. All of that does come out, though, as we teach through the Bible in an expository way. So that's one of the, the hallmarks of what we do. And as to the question as why other churches don't teach uh, about eschatology, I mean, this is something that the pastor will have to answer to there. I, I would like to think that they would as it comes up in the scriptures, um, but uh, I, can all, I can only talk about what we do here. Now, uh, let me elaborate on this a little bit further, because the reason why what we do here at Calvary Chapel is teach what the Bible says and then focus on like areas of eschatology as they come up in scriptures, because we believe very strongly that uh, the Bible, number one, does teach a pre-tribulational rapture and a pre-millennial second return, second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, We think the Bible is very clear. We think Paul the Apostle from the first century was one that was uh, pre-tribulational in his expectation of Jesus' return, or is Jesus' second coming? I'm sorry, Jesus' return for his church. And we think that that's what the Bible clearly says. So the reason why we do emphasize that and that the reason why that is one of the, the distinctives that we have at Calvary Chapel, which is the pre-tribulational rapture, is because how we view eschatology or more practically, whatever our eschatological viewpoint is of the scriptures will directly affect how we live our lives today. And that's the truth. Peter writes in his second letter, chapter 3, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He's talking about the end times. He's saying everything's going to burn. We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. And, And he's saying in light of these things being true, what kind of people ought you to be? He's talking about today. And then he answers and he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And this is the reason why, Lucy, at least here at Calvary Chapel, what we do is we we teach that there is a pre-tribulational rapture that could happen at any time now. There is no other prophetical milestone that needs to take place in order for Jesus to come back for his church. I realize some disagree, and that's fine. But a clear reading of the Scriptures gives us every indication of Jesus' 
return is imminent. And because that's true, that dictates how we live our lives today. Practically speaking, it means this. If, if I don't believe Jesus is going to come until after the tribulational period, then that's going to affect how I live today. When Peter writes here, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Well, if I think that the earth is going to become better instead of things getting worse, like the Bible says, that's, that's not going to compel me to practice practical holiness today. But if I realize, and if I'm fully convinced, that Jesus is coming back any time now, and I don't do that to be to scare people, and I'm not doing that because I don't want to be surprised. But if I'm living today, my day, as if I fully expect Jesus to come back at any moment, then I'm not going to want to sin today. I'm not going to want to compromise today. I'm not going to want Jesus to come when I'm not ready. And this isn't a matter of me trying to look busy so that, uh, you know, I, I could appear like I'm doing something. But it's, it's what Paul the Apostle would write to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter of his letter. Verse 15, he says, redeem the time because the days are evil. He's saying, don't waste time with petty stuff. And that's the, the mentality, that's the perspective that the Bible gives us when we study proper eschatology. If we live as if Jesus could return at any moment, and that's exactly what we believe, then I'm not going to waste time with petty things. I'm not going to waste time compromising. And I'm not going to waste time getting angry over things that, that really don't matter. You know, Whenever I go to hospitals uh, and I am praying with somebody who, who knows they're going to see Jesus soon, I never, I've never once met a person that says, I wish I would have worked more hours. I, I wish I would have invested more into my Roth IRA. I, I don't meet people like that. We don't have those kind of conversations as somebody is approaching the end of their life. Once mortality becomes a reality, all of the stuff that's not important goes to the to the wayside. And all they think about is getting ready to meet Jesus. Well, that's the attitude we should have today. If we truly believe what the Bible says, that Jesus Jesus' return for his church is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time now, then our lives, here, what Peter says, are, are we should be people, we ought to be people that live like this, holy and godly lives, looking forward to that day when he comes. Uh, so, Lucy, I hope that helps. To the last part of your question about why churches don't teach it, I... I you know, I I don't know. I can't speak for other churches. Uh, I understand it may be something that um, may scare people. I don't think it's scary. I think it's encouraging. Um, sometimes uh, people will avoid certain parts of the Bible because uh, it may be something that that, that may scare people. I and mean, I think with eschatology and the study of the end times, it's the opposite. I think it gives us a great encouragement of what to look forward to and how we ought to live our lives today. And so, Lucy, that's all I can do. I hope that helps. Thank you for your wonderful question. A lot of, a lot of the... Um, I want to speak for a lot of churches, but I will say this. A lot of Christians, I think, don't fully understand the practical application of a solid understanding of biblical eschatology. Because if we do, it'll dramatically change the way you think. 
It, it really will. It, uh, even to the point to where you're you're in the drive-through at McDonald's and you're it's going longer than you think, and the cash register person is is, is giving you the incorrect change, and you've got a a, a three-second window there uh, to to make a comment. If you understand Jesus is coming back any second now, you're going to use that three seconds to encourage him. Say, good job. I know you're working hard. But if you don't think about Jesus' return coming anytime, you're going to use that three seconds to complain and say, you know what? What's wrong with you guys? And that's why having a proper understanding of eschatology and a proper understanding of God's Word has a dramatic and direct effect on how we live today. We should live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are done with the first half of the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado. I am filling in for Pastor Ron this week, and so if you're just tuning in, the show continues as it usually does. We're here to answer your questions Questions about the Bible and how to put it into practice in your life. Real quickly, let me give you the phone numbers. 210-340-9585-210-340-9585-877-630-5757. That's the toll-free number. 877-630-5757. The email address is questions at Sa. Dot com. Let's go right to our phone lines. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ken. It's nice to hear you today. Hi, Cindy. It's great to hear from you. Oh, you know what? Friday night study in uh, John, the Gospel of John, I, I thought was really riveting. I'm still thinking about one particular part about it, and that was the difference between the two types of... Um, Christian walks that um, there's a kind of a blasé walk and kind of a walk that's really committed to Jesus. And I wondered if you would talk again about what you said and how you described them and the two words that you used. Uh, I think that they might have been Greek. I was wondering what the spelling on those were. And that's that's what I had. So I'm going to get off the phone and listen on the radio. Bye. Oh, bye, Cindy. Thank you for your question. Uh, you, you know, I, I am not a r- real big fan of using uh, the original language in Bible studies. I, I don't think it's really as effective, especially when people don't speak a different language. However, there are certain passages where they just really stick out to you. And John chapter 1, verse 4 is one of those passages. One of John, the Gospel of John, is one of those books where... There, there is so many, uh, so many things that John the Apostle says with double meaning. And uh, you don't want to read too much into it. But John chooses his words very carefully. And the first 18 verses of that first chapter are a foundation of the deity of Jesus Christ. His whole purpose of that gospel is to introduce people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, to introduce them to the Jesus that he knows. And I love that because at the very beginning, and what we talked about on Friday, is there in verse 4, it says that in him, in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of men. And what I said was this word for life is the key word here. And it's the word zoe. And it means life in the Spirit, a life, a fulfilling life, a fruitful life in the Spirit. 
And this is the kind of life, the abundant life that Jesus gives us. The other Greek word is bios. If you're a computer person, you that no doubt is a familiar word to you. But bios is a Greek word that, that speaks of the biological life. Obviously, that's where we get the word biology from. But it talks about simply being alive versus being dead. It's uh, alive, but not to the extent that Zoe says you're alive and fruitful and thriving. So Zoe, the word that John uses in chapter 4, is is where John says in Christ, in him, was the Zoe life, the life that gives life to men. Uh, he will go on to talk about the light, being the light to men. But what we talked about on Friday was this life. And so the practical application of that, like Cindy mentioned, was so many Christians settle for just being alive. Maybe you are born again. You intellectually understand that Jesus has died for your sin and you have professed faith in him. And by all means, you are a born-again Christian. But your life lacks power because that power only comes from a life that is fully submitted to the Lord. That's the Zoe life that John says Jesus gives us life in the spirit, life that is fruitful. And what this means practically is, you know, when you're around other people, they say things to you like, you know, there's just something about you that's different. And that's an open door of opportunity that Jesus is giving you to say it's Jesus. And then you can go on and share and witness for Jesus Christ. But living a life that is so close to Jesus, you, you're with him all the time, the natural byproduct of that Zoe life is the fruit of the Spirit oozing from you, spilling forth from you, and you're not even trying. It's, it's just the natural byproduct of you being so close to Jesus. And so, Cindy, that's what I see John starting to describe here, because what he's saying, again, writing to Jews and to Gentiles, to everybody, saying that there is life that comes from Jesus Christ, not just to be alive, but to be living, living in the Spirit. And that's what I pray that you guys would have every single moment of every single day. It, you know, living like that doesn't mean you pretend that there are no problems. But it means in the middle of your problems, you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. It means that you don't snap at somebody just because uh, you're not having a good day. But it means even when things around you are falling apart, you can still respond to your circumstances and respond to people with an unshakable joy and indescribable joy because that joy doesn't come from your circumstances. It comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. And I can't emphasize that enough. That's the life that Jesus gives us. So, Cindy, thank you for, for bringing that up. I mentioned Friday night, you know, in counseling and, and just in co casual conversations, no doubt some of you have experienced the same thing. We know Christians who walk around with a look on their face and a body language that that says nothing about joy in the Lord, but it says everything about how miserable their life is. And while I understand how difficult things can be, is there no greater testimony for the joy that Jesus gives us than to, to, to meet and talk to somebody that's dealing with something heavy on their heart but still see a palpable joy. Not happiness, but a joy that's unshakable. Now, friends, that's the kind of joy that Jesus wants, to, wants us to have. That's the kind of joy that Jesus gives us. And that's the life, the zoe, 
that comes only from him. Thank you for your question, Cindy. And thank you for your kind words. That opens up the phone lines. If you want to call in, you can do so. 210-340-9585. The next question is... Okay, thank you. Uh, I think I did this one at the end of the show yesterday, but we had technical difficulties, and so uh, I heard that a lot of people didn't hear it. I'm going to do it again if you heard it already. Please forgive me. Uh, This one is from Max. It says, Does Matthew 18 mean that God will treat us harshly if we refuse to forgive each other? The answer is no. So let me tell you about the context of Matthew 18. This is important. Um, This is the passage where Peter is talking and asking, how many times do we forgive? Jesus, do we forgive seven times seven? And and Jesus' answer was, Peter, it's so much more than that. There is no limit to the forgiveness that God has given us. There is no limit to the forgiveness that God extends to us. Therefore, there should be no limit to the forgiveness we extend to others. Now, this is difficult. I realize that. But if we measure forgiveness sort of as a a gatekeeper, where we we, uh, reduce or increase the amount of forgiveness we give to people based on you know, how they act or how they treat us, that's not the forgiveness that Jesus gives us. You see, Jesus has forgiven us of all our sin, past, present, and future. He doesn't once even consider, reconsider his love for you and me. And so, Max, in light of that, that same measure of forgiveness is, is the same measure we extend to others. If we don't, and this is specifically to your question, if we don't, God doesn't treat us harshly, but what it means is that we don't understand the forgiveness that God has given us. That's why in verse 35, there of Matthew 18, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Because it means you don't get it. You don't have the forgiveness of God. You have a forgiveness that you are generating out of the, your own heart to the best of your ability, and that's simply not enough. And you can test yourself, Max, in this way. When you have a hard time forgiving somebody, then that is because you can know without a doubt the forgiveness that you're extending is not from Jesus. It's from you. You measure it. You gatekeep that forgiveness because uh, I don't think they really deserve it. Or, you know, they, what they really did was so bad. What they did was so bad and it's just really hard to forgive them. Jesus never once thought of us that way. And yet he was eager, willing and eager, to forgive us, Max, of all of our sin. The measure we use, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 32, and he says, Forgive others, as in Christ, God forgave you. That's the bottom line, Max. And any other forgiveness, short of that, is not forgiveness that comes from Jesus. That is man-made, self-generated, worthless forgiveness. It really is. You know, I, I, I liken this because I have flesh just like everybody else. I liken my challenge in this area to thinking about how much Jesus has forgiven me. Me and May were having lunch today. We were talking about this very same thing. You know, when I think about forgiveness, that is my favorite thing about Jesus. Forgiveness. When nobody else would forgive me, when I wouldn't even forgive myself, Jesus extends to me unconditional forgiveness. He, 
because I place my faith in him, because I've been born again, because Jesus has paid the price for my sin, the forgiveness he extends to me. And I was one that did not have to be convinced I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner. He has forgiven me. And what that means is today, today, somebody hurts my feelings, whether it's intentional or accidental, if something somebody does something to me or says something to me that was mean, I can forgive them. Even if my flesh doesn't want to, I can forgive them. And I forgive them quickly because at the forefront of my mind is the forgiveness that Jesus has extended me. And if I understand how much Jesus has forgiven me, there's nothing that that person could do that would make me want to withhold forgiveness for them. Because my offense towards God is far greater than anything they could have done towards me. I realize how difficult that is. And maybe there's even some of you thinking, ah, but that in me, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know how much I've suffered. You're right. I don't, but Jesus does. And to you, he says the same thing. I love you, and I have forgiven you of all of your sin. Now go and extend that same forgiveness in that same measure to those that have hurt you. Max, I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Next question is from Mike. Why did the angel Gabriel punish Zechariah when his response seemed realistic, when he was told he was going to have a baby at an old age? Well, Mike, we, you're referencing, uh, I think this is Luke chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2. Uh, I think Luke chapter 1, this is Zechariah being John the Baptist's dad. And the angel Gabriel did come to Zechariah and and said, you're going to have a baby. And his Zechariah's response was, uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> In my translation, of course. But Zechariah was an old man. And 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 he realized that his, he and his wife were beyond childbearing age. And so I think, Mike, what you're asking is, well, if Zechariah understood that it was unrealistic for him and his wife Elizabeth to have a baby at that age, why did Gabriel punish him when his response seemed realistic? A couple of things here. This wasn't punishment. This wasn't punishment. Now, what did happen, because Zechariah did not believe Gabriel, is Zechariah was muted. He was silenced. His mouth could not speak until the time John was born. But that's not punishment. That's a consequence of weak faith. And this is the reason why God dealt with Zechariah so severely. It's not because he was angry at Zechariah, and it's not because he had to punish Zechariah, but it's because Zechariah was going to be used to 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 be part of an event that would change the landscape of human history. Now, I don't use that with hyperbole. John the Baptist, the baby that would be born, would be the voice crying out in the wilderness to make crooked paths straight, to prepare the hearts for Jesus Christ, who was coming. And so, Zechariah's faith was weak, and weak faith has consequences. Not punishment, but there's consequences to it. And so, God used this time to prepare Zechariah for what he needed Zechariah to do, which is be part of the plan that God had for John the Baptist. And and through this time, too, as Zechariah's mouth would be silenced, God was working on his heart, preparing him that he would be fully convinced that his name is John. Remember what happened there, Mike, when John was finally born and they were trying to figure out a name for the baby. 
and Zechariah couldn't speak, and they were thinking of names. And then finally, Zechariah could speak, and he said, his name will be John. Indicating that Zechariah's heart is fully convinced that God has a plan. And, and, and Zechariah is a fully participant in that plan. So there was a preparation that needed to take place. Now, from our Western culture and from our cursory reading of that passage there at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, it does sound like it may be harsh or maybe punishment. But in the same way, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul the Apostle was being prepared for those three days after his experience on the road to Damascus, they're meeting Jesus. There was a time, three days, where Paul would have to lie down and stay still while scales were on his eyes he couldn't see. That wasn't punishment, but it was God ministering, Jesus ministering to Paul the Apostle, saying, I've got work for you to do. And because this work is significant, there's some preparation that needs to take place in your heart, Saul. And so with that, with that, I need you to sit still and I need you to listen to me. And Jesus would minister to his heart, teaching him, speaking to him, encouraging him, challenging him. And that's exactly what Zechariah was going through during this time. So, Mike, thank you for your question. It wasn't punishment. It was preparation. That's what had to take place in Zechariah's life. And and I hope you could see, too, in your own life, Mike, in your life and in mine, too, there is work that God is preparing us for. There's work that God's preparing us for, and we need to let that preparation take place. Okay, next question. Oh, we got a phone call. Let's go to our phone call. We have Kenny from San Antonio. You're on the air. Thank you, Kenny, for taking my phone call. I had a quick question. I know you only have a couple of minutes left. But I saw that movie, The Sound of Freedom. And if you could, um, and I've been hearing this uh, scripture over and over. And, I mean, it was such a powerful movie. And just, you know, uh, anyway, it, it talks about, or I've, I've heard the uh, uh, they're saying it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around that person's neck and drowned to the deepest seas. And if you could, um, I don't know if, if that's taken out of context, but if you could, uh, and if, you know, what's happening over 800,000 children, I don't know, they said like, and it's a ridiculous number. Sure. But, um Heartbreaking, uh, for sure. And it grieves, grieves my heart, and even what's going on in Israel and, and the evil, you know, yes. in this world, what's going on to touch one of these children. We can even go to abortion, too. These, these doctors, they're going, to be account- they, they're going to be accountable. And, You're right. Uh, if you could tell me about, uh, uh, if you could talk about that scripture, and uh, I just want to praise God for what the Lord is doing in y'all's ministry, and it can only be the Lord. Absolutely. For what I've heard Pastor Ron talk about. For, for a school to be free, for a restaurant to be opened, for a medical clinic, that can only be from the Lord. <laughs> You're absolutely I praise, right, Kenny. I praise God for what the Lord is doing, and it's only the Lord. When I You're hear right, Pastor only Ron the say, Lord. Stay, stay close to Jesus, stay in his lane, and so I just praise God for what the Lord's doing in y'all's ministry and y'all's obedience. And if you could just uh, uh, talk about that scripture, I, will. I sure would appreciate it. I will, Kenny, and, and, and forgive me here. We, we're under two minutes here for the show. I will speak very shortly about it and then close out the show, and then I'll touch on it at the beginning of uh, tomorrow's episode, because I think this is this is an important one. Um, uh, when Jesus talked about causing the little ones to stumble in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, I think he also mentions it in Luke chapter 17. But what he's talking about is 
hindering or impeding Jesus, uh, kids from coming to him. And this movie that you mentioned is, is one of those examples of, of the atrocities and the, just the craziness of our world, specifically to the evil specifically carried out to, to people, to children. Uh, and, and Jesus's heart is for these kids. And what he wants more than anything is for little children to come unto him, for them to hear how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, to, for them to hear that God loves them and that his desire is for them to live a life that is beyond the pain and the suffering that they're enduring. And I know that kind of goes on on a tangent based on Matthew chapter 18, but this is Jesus's heart. And, you know, I, I, I don't have much to say about the movie. I'll comment a little bit on it tomorrow um, because I think it's important. But you can hear the music. And so we'll, I'll bring that up again tomorrow, Kenny. This is The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and I'll join you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.